Hello, and welcome to New Books Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troy, your host, and each week we look at a new book in the public policy realm and talk to the author and get their insights into how their book affects the current public policy debate. This week, we're talking to Naomi Schaefer-Riley, the author of The Faculty Lounges and Other Reasons Why You Won't Get the College Education You Paid For. In the book, Naomi criticizes tenure and argues that it is not helpful to professors or to students and that in the long run, students are getting a worse education as a result of faculty members having tenure. It is a controversial argument, but it is made with good humor and with verve, and I think you will enjoy the book as well as the interview. Hello, Naomi Riley, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thank you. Uh, we'd love to uh, start by uh, asking you a little bit about yourself. Can you tell, give us a bio and tell us how you came to write this book? Uh, Well, I used to uh, work at the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I used to cover uh, education, culture, philanthropy for them, uh, and a little bit of religion as well. And um, I have been writing about higher education, actually, for about a dozen years now. I'm the daughter of uh, two PhDs and the sister of one as well. And um, so I've kind of had uh, an insider's view of higher education for a long time. My parents started picking my college when I was about two, I think. And, um, but, you know, over the course of the years, it's kind of been interesting to me to see kind of how much I've been privy to as far as understanding how higher education works, but how little I think American consumers, that is to say parents and students, understand about it. And so um, I became particularly interested in you know, sort of the faculty system, the uh, the uh, the academic workforce and kind of how people got promoted and what kinds of things were rewarded. And uh, that led me to write the faculty lounges and other reasons why you won't get the college education you paid for. You know, in many ways, this is a very distressing book. We're, we're not happy with the, the tenure system, as you describe it. And, the, and as you said, you're not getting the college education you pay for. But at the same time, it's also a funny book. The first line of the book is a line I had not heard before, but it did make me laugh, which is, first get tenure, then hoist the Jolly Roger. At other times, you have uh, cartoons, although I thought you were going to have a cartoon before each chapter. You just have it in front of many chapters, but uh, some of the, them are, are pretty funny, including the one where somebody's, uh, I guess, uh, tossing away their pants because we don't need pants anymore. We now have tenure. Right, exactly. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the way you're trying to make the point through humor and uh, how you found the cartoons you're, you're using. It's a really hard topic. It's a huge blob of bureaucracy and a lot of kind of insiders lingo. And it's it's and a lot of the arguments that have been had about higher education are arguments among insiders. And a lot of the kind of outsiders don't really think that they have uh, much of a stake in it. They kind of think, well, I'm just going to pick where my kid goes to college based on what name sounds right to me. And hopefully they'll be happy there and then they'll get their ticket to the middle class. Um, But, you know, I think so. I think you have to kind of find a way to talk to the general audience, which is to say parents, students and taxpayers um, about the system. And um, I hope that uh, a little bit of humor might might help this kind of complex subject go down a little bit easier. Um, I, I try not to sort of, uh, I, I try not to write kind of inside baseball. Um, I think that there are a lot of important issues here. And I think that contrary to what most college professors will tell you, um, the average educated layperson can actually understand a lot of them. You don't have to have a PhD to understand what's going on. Yeah, uh, 
you said that, but at the same time, you said both of your parents have PhDs, or at least your, your dad did. No, they they both do. I um my both my mother, my father, and my my only sibling, my sister, all have PhDs. So it's just me who doesn't. Do you feel very left out when they talk about uh, footnotes or dissertations or? Uh, you know, meetings? I, um, I feel like I I was sort of steeped in that world for a long time. Um, you know, my, it was not only my parents. Obviously, most of their friends, you know, were friends from graduate school or friends, um, you know. Who, who taught with them now, and so I was, I've been exposed to that world for a long time, um, you know, and, and I almost went to graduate school myself, to be perfectly frank about it, so I don't, I don't feel left out in some sense, but I, I, and I joke with them that, you know, now I'm the only one left in the, in my immediate family who knows how to screw in a light bulb, because all practical sense immediately gets removed once you have a PhD, um, but I don't, you know, I, I think um, the, there is a sense in which uh, you know, my my own parents, um, uh, I think, kind of uh, d- don't necessarily value a lot of the things that uh, many people who value PhDs get, which is to say, I don't think that, I think they still value clear writing. Um, I think they are uh, very suspicious of kind of the lingos and the jargon, even of their own disciplines. Um, my mother actually writes, uh, she runs a small think tank, and she writes more for a general audience, uh, you know, than a typical academic would. She writes reports telling uh, the city of Worcester, which is where my parents live, what what it's doing wrong. And um, so she's writing sort of more public policy papers, which I think have to be understood more generally. Um, so I think, you know, in, in that sense, I, I kind of have one foot in, in each world. You know, one thing I would take slight issue with is you say that when you get a PhD, all sense immediately leaves or all practical sense <laughs> I myself have a PhD, and I know it's not immediate. It takes six to eight years if you're lucky. Oh, six to eight years if you're lucky. Yes, definitely. One of the one of the things that I found in this book, probably one of the most shocking statistics, if not the most shocking one, was the median time to get an English PhD is 11 years. And I just I I was I got tired reading that sentence. I mean, I can't even um, you know you, it's hard to fathom just how much of people's lives get sucked up these days. And I think a lot of outsiders don't realize just how much that has lengthened. I mean, you you really used to be able to get a PhD in, you know, six or seven years and maybe even five if you were fast about it. And uh, there was kind of an interesting article uh, by Louis Menand, which I talk about in the book, where he sort of tries to figure out why it's taking so long to get PhDs, particularly for humanities scholars. And he said, well, you know, with a hard science, you assume, well, there's so many years of lab work and you're trying to discover something new and there's so much trial and error. But then he sort of thought about it for a while and he realized that for the humanities, um, you know, the incentive now is all for PhDs to try to find something new to say about something. And the niche, you know, to do that is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so what you have is these humanities graduate students who are banging their heads against a wall. You know, they think they finally come up with a novel take on, you know, a certain act of a play of Shakespeare. And it turns out that someone somewhere, you know, at the University of Kansas actually wrote that last year. And then they have to start from scratch. And it's infuriating. And I and I can't think, actually, that it's a very good use of the minds of, of, of these people and, and that uh, this is the way we want our most talented people to be spending their time. Yeah, I think there are some other reasons there as well, including the fact that when they do graduate, there are no jobs. And so they want to stay in the academic womb as long as possible. Sure. I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, the, the lack of jobs is not a new thing. And I'm always 
surprised when I talk to people, to young graduate students who are complaining about the job situation. I mean, I can remember, you know, uh, you know, when I was seven years old, my parents would have, you know, people coming through, you know, just to visit or, you know, and, and the discussion would be all about how so-and-so can't get a job, so-and-so has to work in a different city from his wife, you know, so-and-so didn't publish enough, and so they won't be getting tenure and they have to start all over again. I mean, it is, it's a very sad story, but on the other hand, I, I also feel like you, you wouldn't have to read the Chronicle of Higher Education for more than a week before you realize that that was the situation. I mean, it, it hasn't changed. And um, and I and I do wonder, uh, you know, why I, I I still after studying the subject still can't figure out why people continue to go to graduate school, particularly in subjects where um, you know the, the PhD is not is not giving you another option. I mean, maybe if you get a PhD in political science, okay, you you can go work at a think tank. You get a PhD in you know uh, uh, you know immunology, you can go work for a drug company or something like that. There are other options besides academia. But for PhDs in humanities and even a lot of the social sciences, I think your options are extraordinarily limited. Yeah, well, whenever people ask me advice about going to graduate school, I always say it's fine to go get a PhD. It's a interesting and useful degree, well, maybe not that useful, a helpful degree in, in helping people think to, to some extent, but I always tell them, assume that you're not going to get a teaching job and figure out what you would do without that teaching job. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think um, uh, there are a lot of people who are really unprepared, and, you know, this leads to the question about, um, you know, who is doing the teaching, um, and that, you know, obviously many colleges have just decided that um, you know, teaching undergraduates, uh, you know, broad introductory classes, for instance, is not something you need a PhD for at all. I mean, and, and I tend to agree with them. I mean, do you need to have completed your dissertation in some obscure research topic before you teach undergraduates poli-sci 101? And the answer is probably no. And in some ways, you know, I feel like the academics have kind of dug themselves into this hole where the training to become an academic has very little to do with what you do when you become an academic. I, I was talking to um, someone recently who is the uh, the editor of a kind of um, thinky magazine, and he left academia recently after about 20 years. And he said to me, "Well, you know, Naomi, I was just I was teaching the same classes year after year, and I would try to change the syllabi a little, but." You know, it's just, it's hard doing that, you know, year after year. And I said, well, what did you expect when you were in graduate school? Did you not expect that this is how you were going to be spending your time? And he said, nobody really talked about it. You know, the whole teaching thing seemed so secondary. <laughs> that is the problem. It's too often secondary. Well, as you said, you had two parents. One has tenure, one does not have tenure. And I assume that shaped your view to some extent. At the same time, in the book, you say that your view used to be, well, faculty members like tenure, so who am I to argue? How is it, have your views on this subject evolved to the point where you're write, writing a book that's explicitly anti-tenure? So, I mean, you know, the tenure was always kind of like the, the joke. I mean, so it's the punchline of a lot of academic jokes. And I and I sort of just figured, well, you know, every – I it was something that I was so used to growing up. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, one of my first jobs I had, like I was complaining to my dad one day about how I didn't like something my boss was doing. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said – well, nothing, because you know what? I want this job still. I mean, it was it was kind of an interesting, I think, both for my dad and me, kind of this moment where it was like, oh, you really have entered a different world here. Um, so I think you know, there's there's a sense in which I just thought it it I was just unquestioning about it. I mean, I questioned a lot of uh, academic nonsense, but tenure on its face 
didn't seem to me to be, you know, something that was so bad. I mean, I couldn't trace a lot of the problems of academia to that in particular. So, you know, the what led me to really start to wonder about tenure was the research question. I mean, you know, I, I certainly had been aware for a long time that there was a teaching problem in our universities, that it wasn't being done well, and that it was not considered a priority. And um, when I started looking into that, I realized just how much that problem was really wrapped up in tenure. I mean, you know, to begin with, of course, you know, tenure is given on the basis of, of research, and it was designed that way. I mean, tenure was really designed as a system to allow people to ex engage in this kind of far-reaching academic inquiry. It wasn't really about classroom life at the beginning. Classroom life was kind of, um, you know, it, it was not something that people felt you had to necessarily go out on a huge limb for. But but finding new knowledge and developing new theories, that was something that you needed the protections of tenure for. So, so then what happened was, you know, over the years, it's basically been this, you know, race to the bottom, uh, I would say, in terms of the research. I mean, I talked to one professor at Michigan State who said, you know, when I came here 30 years ago, people used to bring in the research that they wanted us con to, to consider for tenure in a loose-leaf folder, and now they bring it in in two Xerox boxes. And, I mean, it should just give you an idea of the quantity, and the quality certainly has not, uh, in my opinion, increased. And more importantly, the readership of all of this research has actually diminished over the years. So, you know, how do you, how do you weigh the fact that you're, you're producing a lot more of this Fewer people are actually consuming it, and there's no change in the quality, but yet we're rewarding it with this job for life. So I think that that sort of was, um, I think, one of the biggest things that I, I noticed about tenure that bothered me. The second thing was that I have long been concerned that faculty are kind of driving undergraduate education into the ground. I mean, I think that they are off in their own little world, as I said, doing their research, but they're also in control of a whole lot of parts of education that are um, really problematic. I mean, you know, they're, they're in charge of, um, I think faculty have largely been responsible for the end of the core curriculum. So, you know, now when a 17-year-old walks onto campus, we just assume that they know what they should be studying. We hand them some giant, thick administrative course guide and say, here, choose your own adventure. And, you know, in my humble opinion, you know, 17-year-olds don't really know what they don't know. And you can't just pretend that they're going to give themselves a good college education just by flipping to a random page. So I think there's that thing that, that the faculty are responsible for. And, and tenure has really given them the power over the curriculum, but it's also given them power over weird things, like why do faculty get to decide when they teach their courses? I mean, I've had students complain to me that they cannot graduate on time because all their faculty are having classes at the same time and they can't get the classes they need that are required to graduate. That's crazy to me. Yeah, the um, the story about you and your dad uh, and your, your, your job woes, I guess, uh, reminds me of the cartoon you have on page 15 which is uh, the bespectacled uh, pipe-smoking professor who goes to a lawyer, and the lawyer says, your wife hasn't broken the law, professor. She can leave you even if you do have tenure. <laughs> so th there's this sense of, um, uh, you know, of entitlement that the professors have. And then you, um, you talk a little bit about the, the publications, and I think you have a very pithy way of describing how, um, how they might or be forced to publish more, but it's not necessarily more interesting or more useful or more informative. You call it more publication, less relevance. 
yeah. so uh, there, there's a number of factors that are going together. You've got the, the, this sense of entitlement, this, um, this marginalization or this uh, increased specialization. Um, and then one other thing you talk about is the lack of transparency, and you, you call transparency a, a threat to academics. Can you talk a little bit about how that threat plays out and, and how we can combat it? Well, there are a couple of different ways. I, uh, there was an interesting piece after I published the book um, by a professor named Daniel Dresner, who's now at Tufts. But um, prior to that, he and, was uh, at... And people who've listened to the podcast know that we have had him on his zombie book. Oh, okay. Well, I don't, I don't know if he talked about his tenure experience, but he wrote about it for the Chronicle recently. And actually, his wife wrote about his tenure uh, experience, too. So he was at the University of Chicago for six or seven years. Everything was going great. As you know, he's a you know, well-respected scholar, and um, I, I gather from the fact that he's interested um, in a broader audience that maybe he's a good teacher, too. I don't, I don't know for sure, and I think he doesn't know either. So you know, then uh, a bunch of his colleagues basically go into a room one day and decide he doesn't get tenure. And tenure is an up or out system, which means if you don't get tenure, you're done. You need to leave. So, I mean, I, I think that is sort of an, an oddity of the system to begin with. But but Dresner sort of talked in this piece, which I found really kind of interesting from an academic insider, about this weird feeling that these people that you've been working with on a daily basis, you know, all of a sudden one day can decide and without giving you any reason in particular that you're done. And, you know, they don't have to give you any warning about it ahead of time. And, you know, it could be based on anything. I mean, some, some schools consider, for instance, collegiality a reason to uh, give or deny someone tenure. So basically, it's sort of like fourth grade all over again. You know, how friendly are you with your colleagues? And, and then they basically have a little popularity contest. Um, you know, often, of course, it's about ideology. You know, it's a, you know, do you, are, are your views, whether, by the way, they're on politics or string theory or something else, are they in line with the rest of the departments? And this is, of course, how you get this kind of um, tremendous ideological uniformity on campus, uh, which is the system of, of departmental majoritarianism, as they call it. Um, you know, you get to basically faculty just keep voting in clones of themselves. So, I mean, the, the transparency issue to me is is it's it's something that academics really like to talk about. They always are advocating for more transparency in, in other professions. You know, we have departments of medical ethics now and legal ethics and all of these things. Uh, many people would say, well, the first thing you need is, is transparency, but, but we don't have any academic ethics. And there there is very little, in my opinion, transparency in the process. Hey, you mentioned this thing about uh, the, the, I guess, ideological clones and uh it seems to me that the original point of tenure was to give uh, full free speech rights to professors so they could say whatever they wanted, whatever they thought, and so you could have diversity of views, and it has turned out to be the opposite. And you even tell this really frightening story, and I thought I'd heard it all. I've read you know, many of the books on political correctness, but this, this Berkeley class guide that has a phrase in there that says conservative thinkers are encouraged to seek other sections. I mean, could you imagine a conservative professor teaching a class saying liberal thinkers encouraged to seek other sections or or a, you know a muslim studies group saying uh, jewish uh, jewish students encouraged to seek other sections or you know any other group based on their ideology their race their their perspective it's it's, it's mind boggling no, it, it to me is. I mean, I uh, the statistic that I start that chapter with is um, looking at the uh, McCain, the, the giving to the McCain and the Obama campaigns. And I'm sure everybody realizes that there is a serious discrepancy on campus, but faculty members gave to the Obama campaign by a factor of eight to one over McCain's campaign. I, Only? <laughs> it, it, it's just, you know, look, it, to 
me, it's it's just it's a it's a lopsidedness that is not really represented elsewhere. And you have all of these academics scrambling now to come up with explanations for why. But the most common one you hear from academics is, well, it's because conservatives are stupid, and and you know only smart people go into academia. I mean, it it is truly kind of a, amazing the the level of insularity uh, you know that this encourages. So I mean, part of it the the question of tenure for me was you know, looking at it as a test, you know, okay, tenure was put in place to encourage, um, you know, academic freedom and the freedom of people to dissent, uh, you know, from what is the sort of general consensus. And there are so few campuses where that happens now and so few professors where they do that. I mean, one of the, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the length of time that is required to get a PhD, but then after that, so, you know, say you're finally, if assuming you started graduate school right after college, so maybe you're 30 when you get your PhD, then you spend another, you know, six or seven years, although the University of Michigan just increased its tenure clock to 10 years, um, wow. uh, trying to get tenure. So then say you're closer to 40, and then all of a sudden you're going to hoist the Jolly Roger. You know, I mean, people get kind of um, used to a particular way of behaving around their colleagues. And what the the way of behaving in academia is, you know, keep your head down and your mouth shut unless you happen to agree with, you know, the majority of people in your department and on campus. I, I think there's really no way of, of uh, of getting around that fact. So you kind of train people uh, to not dissent. And then, you know, and I don't think then tenure really does much, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of encouraging people to suddenly speak up. Yeah, you, you mentioned this stat about eight to one faculty donations in favor of Obama back in, in 2000. But you mentioned a more surprising statistic to me that a majority of professor donations went to Bush in 2000. Is that right? I, I was surprised. I read that in the Chronicle, but I think it does sort of, um, you know, leaving aside academia for a little bit, I think it suggests to you the way in which um, uh, the the kind of uh, uh, elite views have changed, how much Bush hatred really had an effect on a certain class in America. One of the other interesting statistics that I came across was that there actually, the the hard sciences used to be much more balanced in terms of their political views. Um, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was much closer to 50-50 than, say, the social sciences of the humanities. And, you know, people would, you know, offer all sorts of explanations for that. Um, you know, the typical explanation that you get on the left is, well, it's the Republican war on science, and they've decided they don't like evolution, and all these scientists have caught on to that fact, and that's why they're giving the Democrats. But I think, you know, the, the other explanation, which is also uh, perhaps uh, equally true, is that a lot of science has become politicized. I mean, you have entire departments uh, like climate science that have become completely, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, that, that are basically put on campus just because they have a political purpose. Um, so to me, the idea is that, you know, you you um, you have these, the hard science professors are basically um, themselves becoming politicized, and maybe that accounts for a lot of the, of the distinction now. This raises an interesting question, which is you – Talk about the statistic that federal grants to higher education are about $32 billion. You say that there's a subsidy, an effective subsidy, of about $50,000 per academic article, which is also mind-boggling to me. But you also have the situation where the professoriate is so overwhelmingly Democrat, 
in this era of budget cuts, do you think that Republicans might say, hmm, maybe universities are a place we can look at for uh, cut, cutting budgets, or, or are Republicans just as in the tank for academia as the Democrats are? Well, they're definitely not. I mean, the question is, um, at the federal level, I think it's unlikely, because at the federal level, obviously, the biggest form of subsidies is Pell Grants. And I think very few Republicans, uh, you know, uh, unless you're Ron Paul, really want to be against financial aid. I mean, college is thought of as the great um, you know, a kind of, a, you know, social equalizer, and we want to obviously give opportunities to people on the bottom of the economic ladder. So nobody really um, wants to come out against, uh, you know, the, the federal financial aid program. Although, of course, if you talk to people like Richard Vedder at the Center for Ecology, Affordability, and Productivity, they will show you the, the charts that suggest our uh, third-party payer system, uh, you know, that basically we are not giving colleges any incentive to rein in costs. In fact, we're saying, do you want to raise your prices? Great. We'll give you more money to help you do that. So the incentives certainly are all wrong there. But as far as whether anyone is willing to look at colleges and, and suggest budget cuts, I mean, certainly I think you're having a very interesting fight going on in Texas right now over cost at state universities and publication has really come up as a subject uh, where where some some serious cuts are being thought about. Um, you know, people are are questioning the teaching loads of faculty and and um, uh, again the Richard Vetter Center I think came out with a statistic that showed that 20% of the faculty were doing something like 80% of the work. So, um, you know, I think that that is uh, the, at the state level, the budget cuts are, are, are definitely, I think, being thought about uh, more. You know, the, the other thing I think very few people realize, and even state legislators don't realize, at the, at the state university level, um, you know, at, at, the, at the research university level, um, you know, a lot of basically about half of professor salaries go toward research, which is to say they're teaching a half a course load because it is assumed that they are spending 50% of their time publishing. So if you ask a state legislator, they will say, oh, we, we don't subsidize research. You know, they just get grants for that. But in fact, through faculty salaries and the way those salaries are structured, we are subsidizing research to an incredible extent. I'm glad you mentioned Vetter because he really is a a different kind of thinker on these issues. When I when I was in the Bush White House, the Department of Education was putting together a commission on higher ed, and I insisted that they put Fetter on to to the dismay of uh, some of the kind of uh, pro uh, faculty voices out there. Uh, but you also mentioned that he has a special ranking, a Vetter Forbes ranking of what schools are better, and that doesn't necessarily go by the U.S. News approach. Can you talk about the Vetter Forbes ranking, how it works, and if it's available, where we could find it? Sure. Uh, you can go on the Forbes website, um, and it's done with Forbes and the Center for College Affordability and Productivity. It's not actually the better Forbes ranking, but, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'll give you know, credit he's, for it. <laughs> he's certainly, he's certainly uh, many, a lot of the brains behind the operation. So what Vetter decided to do, which I thought was fairly interesting, was look at um, bang for your buck. So he looked at, for instance, you know, how much students were going into debt to go to a particular school. He looked at um, starting salaries coming out of a particular school. And he looked at, uh, you know, how many students were getting different kinds of awards, a Marshall Scholarship, a Rhodes Scholarship, things like that. Um, you know, one of the, I think, most important criticisms of the U.S. news rankings is that um, they base 
uh, a significant portion of their formula on the reputation of the school. And the reputation of the school is basically determined by other faculty and administrators, and the other faculty and administrators determine that based on a record of publication. That is how you hear about the reputation of another school is through publication. So um, I, I just caution people. I mean, I think it is great that, you know, U.S. News has this ranking. I think it's made a lot more information readily available to parents and students, but I'm also happy that other people are coming out with important, with, with rankings that, that look at the data differently, um, because I think, you know, we need all the kind of raw material out there, but just the things that may be important to U.S. News may not be important to you as a parent or a student. So I encourage you to sort of go beyond, you know, should I go to school number 53 or number 75? Well, of course, number 53, you know, and, and really think about how they're being ranked. Unfortunately, there's not a, a good system right now in place for ranking what I think is the most important thing, which is teaching. Um, the American Council for Trustees and Alumni has a ranking system uh, that it's called What Will They Learn, where they give colleges grades based on uh, requirements in core subjects, um, which I think is useful. And I think, uh, you know, the, the schools generally that are requiring people to take, you know, Economics 101 or a survey of British literature, you know, that goes over a significant period of time, you know, I think students are generally going to be better served by those schools. Um, on the other hand, again, it, it can't measure the quality of teaching. And I would really, um, you know, for those parents and students who are in a position to go visit colleges, I, I try to offer a little bit of advice in the book, like don't go visit over the middle of the summer uh, when no one is there and classes are not in session. Um, you can admire the scenery, but you could do that just as well from uh, your computer at home. Um, I encourage people to go sit in on classes and not just, you know, if you, if you go to some schools, they'll say, oh, well, come to our, our advanced level, you know, constitutional law seminar. Well, you won't, you may not be in that seminar for four years. Uh, so, you know, go sit in on an intro class. If there are 600 people around you and the professor is kind of dull and just presenting PowerPoint slides, you need to ask yourself, like, will I learn in this class? And, um, and I think parents need to be asking their, their kids those questions as well. Do you find that there's a lot of variation in teaching ability or, or teaching quality at different schools? I mean, have you tried this test yourself, or have people who you suggested it to tried the test? I have over the last over the last dozen years, I have sat in on countless college classes, and the the variety is to me amazing. I mean, you will have teachers who literally are just reading off of PowerPoint slides. Um, you don't, you wouldn't have to show up. I mean, if they gave you the PowerPoint slides, there would be no reason for you to show up in class. And it's, it's utterly dull, mind numbing. I mean, I, I can't describe it. And I, and if, and, and I sort of understand something about these subjects. If I were an 18 year old sitting in on this class for the first time, I would think to myself, you know, this is not even a discipline I'm interested in. If this is representative and that's the problem. I mean, we're, the, the people that we're putting in front of intro classes are typically the least experienced people who have the most other things that they're supposed to be doing. I mean, they're typically these adjunct professors, um, you know, many of whom don't make very much money, don't have office hours, you know, and their goal is just to publish so that they can move up to the next level. Instead of forcing senior professors, you know, somebody who has, you know, who has been tried and tested and kind of understands what students need to know and also 
you know, finding somebody who's actually excited about the discipline to put in front of that intro class to make it more exciting, to make students interested in it. I mean, the, the number of students majoring in the humanities has plummeted in recent years. And I think part of that is just like the content and part of that is who is standing in front of them. I mean, for better or worse, students see the obvious benefit to studying accounting. But if you want them to understand why they should study English, you have to make the case. And I I think so few of our professors seem to me, and, and just in what I've seen, capable of making that as strongly as they should be. Yeah, two other reasons I would put out there for uh, why humanities majors have uh, been declining is, is one, the, uh, the lack of practical application to many of these degrees, but also what we were talking about a little bit earlier with the bias, uh, the political bias. And uh, you talk a little bit about this as it relates to tenure. You say that some people argue that conservatives like tenure because it protects them. And I want to see what you think of that. And then you also have the, um, the very interesting retort from uh, Checker Finn, who says that, yes, perhaps it does, but it also protects the, the right of 400,000 liberals to say whatever the heck they want. Yeah, I mean, this is something I certainly expected to come up against. And, uh, and certainly I've had this, this argument with my own father. I mean, I feel like to the extent that there is a little bit of dissent on campus here and there, um, certainly, tenure has protected a few good conservative professors, and I'm happy that it has. But like I said before, I just and 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 they will, you know, they'll make the case on a, in a variety of ways. I mean, they'll say, look, uh, you know, if I want to criticize the administration or my, you know, liberal colleagues or whatever, you know, tenure has protected me, and it's the only reason I still have a job. Um, they've also gone further. I mean, I think, you know, you've had, um, I, I interviewed some professors who, you know, conservative professors who said, you know, it, it does encourage uh, uh, good research. And there is something uh, useful out there about requiring professors to write academic treatises. That is that they can't just, you know, sort of BS the way you can in front of a classroom if you're a good entertainer. Um, but ultimately, I, I don't think those arguments stack up. I mean, I think uh, there's so little emphasis on teaching that it's very hard to make the case uh, that, um, you know, that, that their, their time is better spent uh, doing research. Um, but as far as the argument of conservative professors, I mean, I, look, I've been accused of sort of throwing the few conservatives under a bus uh, with this argument. And I, you know, I guess I have to plead guilty. I mean, I just, but I think the system is so broken, you know, that it really needs to be um, you know, reorganized and the the academic labor market, which of course the professors don't like it to like like when I call it that, but the academic labor market really needs to to change significantly. And I and I think it's not just um, you know for the benefit of students. I mean, although I think that they they should be our primary concern. I, I mean, professors are so unhappy, and one of the reasons that professors are so unhappy is because when they do get tenure, then they're stuck for life, probably in many cases, in a place they don't want to be. I mean, you know, th there's no movement in the job market. It's not just that there are no jobs. It's that once you get one, um, you know, don't ever expect to move or find another one. Your spouse may be unhappy. Your, you know, this may not be the best place for your family, but there will never be another job opening for you. My, my brother got his Ph.D. from Harvard in history, and he said that he was the only one of his cohort to have both tenure and a spouse. Because you know, some people gave up and got married, and some people went to Nowheresville and never got married. So uh, yeah, 
No, I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you know, the, the, the double academic couples is just, you know, these, these, these tragedies. I mean, you, if, if you, if you do want to, uh, you know, if you want to get tenure, you basically need to have, uh, you know, someone who is, uh, is, is independently wealthy or someone who can just pick up and move their business or their profession to wherever, you know, East Nowheresville that you would like to move. Now, the last thing I want to get into before I ask our signature final question here on New Books and Public Policy is about this notion of the education bubble. You mentioned the labor market for professors. I know they don't like the term, but there's a, a market for education or for college education in general. And you talk about high tuition, uh, bias in classes, uh, questionable economic returns, the irrelevance of many of the classes. Do you think there is a bubble in higher education? Uh, what will happen if and when it crashes, and how can we hedge against the bubble? Um, I I think there is something of a bubble, but I it's it, I mean the the problem is that there is nothing competing with higher education right now in my mind. So I, I'm not one of those people who will say uh, you know oh don't go to college it's not worth it you know and and everyone's going to realize that in ten years that the whole enterprise was worthless. Because the the credential that you get, it, it, it's your ticket to the middle class life in America. It's your ticket to a profession. And I don't think that it has, to tell you the truth, a lot to do with what you learn in college, unfortunately. I mean, um, uh, going back to Richard Vedder, he did this interesting study where he found out that um, – uh, bartenders who had college degrees earned more than bartenders who didn't have college degrees. So, you know, it, it is clearly not something as much as you drink in college. Um, uh, what you learn in college uh, that makes for that salary bump, it is something about your resume, something that signifies, oh, I work hard, I show up on time, I come from a middle-class milieu, I took the SATs, you know, I mean, these kinds of things that have zero to, to do with what you learned in the classroom. So I, I do think that there is an argument uh, for offering somehow more alternatives to um, at least the, the bachelor's degree. I mean, whether that's more for-profit higher education, whether those are more apprenticeships, um, whether companies can start offering more in the way of on-the-job training or vocational education. Um, I think all of those things may start to slowly deflate but not suddenly pop the higher education bubble. So, you know, hedging, I mean, it's, it, hedging against that to me as a society, it means we start to offer people other avenues, uh, you know, tickets to getting uh, uh, the middle-class American dream. Um, it doesn't mean that we suddenly all decide to, uh, you know, to skip college altogether. Yeah, you touched on this a little bit, but I do want to ask our final signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, and, and thank you for being so generous with your time. But usually we close off with the question of, if you were czar for a day, what public policy proposals would you initiate as a result of what you've seen in writing this book? Um, well, right. I mean, we've talked about it. I guess my big my big policy proposal would be uh, eliminating tenure. And um, you know, it's it's as far as the the czar for a day question. I mean, it depends on you know czar of what. I mean, if I were in charge of you know sort of public universities, I guess I could do this a little bit. I I don't think private colleges are going to have as much incentive to change so quickly. But certainly, 
Um, I think in particular states, you're going to see uh, more pressure uh, to end this kind of uh, job for life sinecure. Um, I, I think, you know, we didn't get into this, but but one of the things that I would really like to see is we're, we're sort of reaching this moment in higher education where, um, uh, you know, Tenure is actually starting to make up a, a there, there are fewer and fewer as a percentage tenured faculty members. And a lot of people say to me, well, why would you eliminate tenure now? I mean, it seems to be on its way out. I don't think it's on its way out. But what we've, you've gotten is kind of this two-tiered system where the people at the top get to make the rules, they get to do the obscure research, they hide in their office, they don't have much contact with students, and the people at the bottom who have very little experience, very little uh, uh, incentive to engage with students. I mean, they could find out a week before the semester begins whether they have a job at all. Those are the people that we have assigned teaching to. And to me, now is the time to kind of think seriously about how we'd like to see the system look 20 years from now. And so I think you eliminate tenure, you replace it with um, multi-year renewable contracts, and, you know, you start treating academia like the rest of the economy. I, I always say to people, um, you know, if the rest of us were as, as obsessed with job security as academics were, the entire economy would come to a grinding halt. Well, let's hope the entire economy does not come to a grinding halt, uh, even though it hasn't been doing much better in the last few <laughs> years. Um, the, the book is The Faculty Lounges and Other Reasons Why You Won't Get the College Education You Paid For. The author is Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I want to thank you for joining us today on New Books Public Policy. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Naomi Schaefer-Riley, the author of The Faculty Lounges and Other Reasons Why You Won't Get the College Education You Paid For. It's an interesting critique of tenure. I think it's funny and engaging, even if controversial. You may not agree, but I think you will find it to be an enjoyable read. So... Heavy Troy for New Books and Public Policy, urging you to read this book and, in general, keep reading.